welcome to PA Centered, a podcast designed to help listeners be a part of the solution to end sexual harassment, abuse, and assault. Each episode, we will take on a topic or current event to help spark conversation and break down barriers to building communities free from sexual violence. Hi, I'm Jackie Strom, the Prevention and Resource Coordinator at the Pennsylvania Coalition Against Rape. I'll be your host today as we're joined by Louie Marvin from the National Sexual Violence Resource Center to talk about Bostock versus Clayton County and how we got here and where we're going. Welcome, Louie. Hi, thanks for having me, Jackie. Can you start by telling us a little bit about yourself and your background? Sure. So um, I currently work with the National Sexual Violence Resource Center, which is part of PCAR. And um, I work on primarily on a project around uh, making tools for advocates on working with male survivors of sexual assault and a couple other things. And I, um, you know, it's funny, I used to work with our local LGBT community center here in Harrisburg. And um, I've been thinking a lot about that work in light of the ruling um, in that I used to go around the community and talk about all kinds of LGBTQ topics. And um, I used to deliver the news to folks that we didn't have these um, workplace protections that are the subject of of the ruling um, in Pennsylvania. And people used to be very surprised and interested by that. And of course, that was a very complicated story to tell because I would have to say, well, in the absence of statewide protection, well, in the absence of a federal law, some states pass these laws. Pennsylvania is not one of them. In the absence of statewide protections, some cities and municipalities have, um, have passed these laws. Harrisburg is one of them, um, but other, other places in our region are not. But you could also work at a company that has, um, that has good policies. So it used to be, used to be very complicated. Um, so I've been kind of laughing about that whole, that whole song and dance that I used to do. Um, now that 100% of people who are LGBTQ workers um, are protected on the basis of, of their identity. Yeah, that's great that now we don't have to worry about doing that spiel and that people are protected. So I wanted to start by having you give us some historical context of Title VII and the Civil Rights Act and just kind of explain how we got to where we are today. Yeah, definitely. So I know you talked with our um, our colleagues who are legal folks, and, and that's not me. So um, I'm glad that they I'm glad that they took care of that. Um, but I do, I do, I just really want to emphasize that uh, when we talk about Title VII of the 1964 Civil Rights Act to recognize the folks that did the work to make that happen. Um, so not just the people who decided in that, in that ruling, but the um, Black activists and the people who worked in the civil rights movement who fought really hard for a long period of time for, for those protections. So I think it's, it's just really important for LGBT community members and, um, and others to, to recognize um, that this ruling stands on, on the shoulders of that work. Um, and then I also just really want to point out that um, it also rests on the work of, um, of a lot of people, particularly the Stonewall veterans that I want to highlight, uh, the folks who were at the bar in, um, in Greenwich Village in 1969 and um, fought back 
against um, a police raid at that at that time and um, sparked um, what folks refer to as kind of the modern LGBTQ rights movement. Um, and it's interesting that a lot of the major and significant players in um, in Stonewall um, who were there that night were transgender women of color who um, <clears throat> were and are the most marginalized and um, um, most underemployed uh, people in our communities. And I think there's something to recognize in that um, um, trans women of color have really um, done quite a bit of work and borne the brunt of a lot of um, of a lot of this fight, and also might be the um, the folks least likely to experience relief from this ruling. Um, in that, you know, workplace protections are primarily protecting workers, and trans women of color are most likely in our community to um, to be underemployed. So another part of this history that I want to recognize is ENDA, which stands for the Employment Non-Discrimination Act, and had to do with um, kind of this, this topic generally around workplace protections for LGBTQ folks. And it's been introduced in every Congress since 1994, except for one. And in 2007, um, that's when protections related to gender identity were added to the bill. So before that, it had just been sexual orientation. So um, particularly dealing with the rights of lesbian, gay, and bisexual folks. Um, and then in 2007, the language of gender identity was added to um, be inclusive of transgender people. And um, that version died in committee. Um, and so then Representative Barney Frank, the openly gay congressman from Massachusetts, um, introduced another bill that then took out that language of gender identity, um, which did get out of committee, but of course we know that it didn't pass anyway. So it had this terrible effect of um, not, getting, not getting us any rights and also exposing and causing um, this really big rift in, in the community. Um, and notably, the, the Human Rights Campaign supported this bill, um, even after saying they wouldn't support a non-inclusive ENDA. And so a lot of LGBTQ activists denounced that decision. Um, but regardless, that choice uh, did a lot of damage in saying to trans folks, hey, we're going to go try to get our rights as um, gay and lesbian and bi folks, and, um, and we'll come and get back to you later on. Um, and so that damage really still reverberates today um, throughout the movement. And um, folks have pointed out that what's interesting, um, given, given that history, that um, the current ruling um, rests on protections based on sex, which is um, sort of interesting, right? Now that non-trans um, LGBTQ folks are enjoying this civil rights win, um, that rests on protections based on sex. So um, just a sort of interesting way that history has come, come um, around again to, um, to highlight that. Thank you for all of that history. I know I'm learning a lot um, just from listening to all the things that you're saying right now. So I also want us to have a bit of a conversation about what this means for rape crisis centers and the anti-sexual violence movement as a whole. So what do you think that rape crisis centers need to be thinking about and take into consideration with this new ruling? 
Yeah, so um, we know that um, sexual violence is something that we can prevent and end when, um, when we address oppression and when we do anti-oppression work. So I think um, this ruling and the implications of it and the future work are all extremely relevant to the work of centers. And I think one thing that um, centers can do that's sort of, I guess, kind of basic level is being able to share accurate information about this ruling um, in your communities. So I think um, for most people who aren't really tuned in to what this means, they might've seen a headline. Um, they might be confused about, about what it means and what it doesn't mean, including LGBTQ people. Um, so just being able to um, explain the extent of this ruling and, um, and what it means. And again, what, what work we still have to do. I think also, again, this is kind of basic, but knowing the resources that are available in your community. So when you are working with LGBTQ clients, um, you know where to, um, where to either refer them for, for more resources or to collaborate um, to support them and to meet their needs. Um, I think another thing that is worth addressing is um, thinking about just making sure that you, you have your own house in order in terms of policies and practices. Um, is gender identity and sexual orientation, are, are those, is that language in your, um, in your non-discrimination policy? Is it something that you actually live up to? And um, thinking about all the different ways that that, um, that, that might show up and how, how you do your work, your um, hiring and supervising um, and all the different practices that you do at your center. And um, one thing in particular that I, that I wanna draw out too is that I think that um, centers are in a really significant and important place to, um, to address particular related topics in their communities. And one of those is the, um, the bathrooms myths. So I just think that centers need to be really um, able and willing and clear in communicating anytime these myths pop up um, to be able to, to share the fact that it's transgender people who are the ones who um, experience violence and are victimized um, violently in bathrooms and locker rooms and sex segregated spaces. Um, and not the opposite. So sometimes we hear these really ugly and untrue myths of, um, you know, that, that try to keep us afraid of transgender people. Um, but in fact, it's transgender folks who, um, who experience that violence. Um, and there's really no evidence that, um, that the opposite is true. So I think being able to say that specifically because it relates to violence and harassment, um, and being able to communicate that really clearly and strongly in your communities is something that um, something that you need to be able to do at your center. Thank you, Louie. Those are great suggestions. I especially like making sure that you know about your local resources so that you can collaborate because um, we can't be the experts in everything that we want to be. And so it's really important to make sure that we're tuned in with our local community. And then I think, it, like you said, as equally important as making sure that at your own agency, you are 
making sure that you're upholding these protections and that um, it's built into the work that you're doing. It's not an afterthought. So thank you for highlighting those ideas. So when we spoke earlier, you told me that there's another case being heard in the fall at the Supreme Court that could have implications on this ruling. So could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So um, this is one of those interesting things where, um, you know, I want to be able to celebrate the good things that are happening (laughs) for LGBTQ rights. Um, But there are, um, there are a lot of worries and fears and possibly negative outcomes um, on the horizon. So one of those is that there is a case that the Supreme Court's going to hear in October related to um, an adoption case. And it's actually um, Pennsylvania related. So um, the city of Philadelphia is involved. And it has to do with whether or not um, adoption agencies are able to say um, that based on their religious convictions that they don't want to um, work with same gender couples um, as potential parents. So um, depending on not only what that decision is, but the way like the, the underpinnings of that decision, um, that could have a lot of implications for whether or not just anyone at all has to uphold um, non-discrimination um, on the basis of sexual orientation and gender identity. And so that work is part of um, some anti-LGBTQ organizing um, that you might see referred to as religious exemptions. And so the question being, um, does someone's religious conviction mean that they don't have to follow laws um, and rules or policies related to um, not discriminating against um, LGBTQ folks. And so I think the worry is out there in the community and the movement that um, if there is um, a ruling that um, very widely um, suggests or says that um, um, individuals and organizations um, can use religious exemptions to um, to not follow um, rules like the one that we're talking about um, and other civil rights um, protections for LGBTQ folks, that that could really undermine um, almost any right that you could think of. <laughs> um, um, so that is, that is obviously worrisome. Um, uh, one thing that we can look to is the Masterpiece Cake uh, shop, the case out of Colorado, and um, the, the court a couple of years ago ruled in favor of, of the baker, but on really narrow grounds. So um, it sort of kicked the, the bigger questions down the road. And so I think advocates are kind of in this place of celebrating this win, and it is one, um, and also just wondering um, what comes next and, um, and will the court do something to undermine Um, to undermine this decision and others. Yeah, it's, that's a real shame to think about that it could undermine this decision. Um, But hopefully, from what we've seen with some of the rulings that the Supreme Court has brought down, that 
um, it'll rule rule in favor of making sure that all people are protected um, from any kind of discrimination. So it's always helpful to know what's on the horizon and what's coming up. So thank you for going over that with all of us. Yeah, um, thanks Jackie for asking that. And also um, I wanna go back to what I was sharing earlier a little bit about ENDA and its history um, and um, you know, how in all of those endos, all those versions of it uh, proposed in Congress um, after 2007, they were all trans inclusive um, after that one that I mentioned, um, but it still hasn't passed. And so for the last five years, there's been a lot of a focus to shift on what's called the Equality Act. And that is more comprehensive. So we're talking right now about workplace protections. Um, the Equality Act, if passed, would, um, would include protections in the areas of public accommodations, housing, and public education, and, um, and more areas. And so um, I think that's one of those things that, um, that centers should be able to understand and explain as well, that, um, that folks still don't have protections in those areas. Again, going back to my anecdote earlier of, um, of all those caveats that I used to have to give when I was when I was more regularly speaking about these issues in community, um, that, you know, unless you live in a state that has passed them, and Pennsylvania is not one of those, um, but unless, you know, you live in um, a city that's passed them, and Harrisburg City, for example, is one of those, or unless um, a company has a good policy that they're not going to discriminate, um, but they don't have to have those policies. So the Equality Act um, for the last five years is kind of the the more comprehensive approach that advocates are working toward um, passing. So that's that's something to know about and to um, um, potentially get involved in organizing around. Thank you. Yeah, I think it makes a lot of sense for rape crisis centers to get involved with trying to get that law passed. And, and like you said earlier, a great way to do that is to get in touch with your local resources and see how you can be helpful, how you can help with educating your community and working towards getting equality for everybody. So, Louie, thank you so much for joining us today to talk about this Supreme Court ruling and what it really means for the anti-sexual violence movement and giving us um, a look into the future of what we what we can look forward to um, and what we need to just be paying attention to. Thanks so much for having me, Jackie. It was really fun to talk about this stuff with you today. I agree. So thanks everyone for listening to this episode of PA Centered. And if you want to find more resources about everything we've talked about, you can visit the National Sexual Violence Resource Center at nsvrc.org, or you can check out PCAR at pcar.org. If you or a loved one needs help, a local sexual assault center is available 24-7. Call 1-888-772-7227 for more information or find your local center online at pcar.org. Together, we can end sexual violence.
Any views or opinions expressed on PA Centered by staff or their guests are solely their own and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of PCAR or PCAR's funders.